we were to summarize the doctrine of Psalm 16, we might put it like this. Because the Lord is my portion, I will live forever. (laughs) Because the Lord is my portion, I will live forever. The main idea of Psalm 16 is that it is a personal prayer of the Christ that the Father would preserve him through life and death and even into eternal life. Again, we could paraphrase Psalm 16 as a prayer that goes something like this. Preserve me even through death. So I want to take a look at Psalm 16. I want to begin by looking at the title very briefly and then look at the 11 verses that compose this psalm. If you'll take a look at the title, it is a miktim of David. Now that's a funny word, miktim. It's not one that we're used to looking at. And there uh, is some debate about how to exactly interpret miktim, but the best idea is that it's a private prayer. It's a private prayer. And in this case, it says it's a miktim of David. Now, that does not mean that it's David's private prayer. It does mean that David is the prophet who has recorded this private prayer. In fact, when we look at the scriptures and we look at how the apostles interpret Psalm 16, they make it very clear that Psalm 16 is the private prayer of Jesus Christ. It's Christ's prayer, and David wrote it down in the Old Testament foreseeing it prophetically. And I want to prove this to you, and so we don't usually do this in a prayer meeting, but if you would like to, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2, where at Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and he's explaining who Christ is, and he's explaining how the Old Testament bears witness to him, and he helps us to understand Psalm 16, and he helps us to understand uh, how we are to read it as Christ's own prayer. And this is the main idea. But if you look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, which is first person prayer for preservation. And he quotes Psalm 16 there in verse 25 through 28. But skipping down to verse 29, he interprets What he's attempting to do here is explain how we can understand Psalm 16 to be about Christ, because it appears to be at first glance or on the surface level about David himself. So Peter's explaining this to the crowds, and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, which is Peter's way of saying Psalm 16 cannot possibly be about David in any respect or any regard. Because David has seen corruption, and we know that because he was buried a thousand years ago, and his tomb is still with us, and his bones are dust. David saw corruption. This psalm cannot be about David. And then he says in verse 30, Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, that is, he foresaw Christ, He foresaw the prayers that Christ would pray, and he recorded them for us in Psalm 16. 
he foresaw and spoke about that he would, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So it's important as we look at Psalm 16 that we understand that it's a prophetic record of Jesus Christ's prayer for preservation in his earthly ministry, even through death and into eternal life. It's a prayer of the Christ for preservation. And so as we get into the body of this psalm, verse 1 through 11, the psalm begins in verse 1 with the main request that God would sustain the Messiah through his hardships. And then it proceeds in the next 10 verses to rehearse seven truths or graces that the Christ is asking the Lord to sustain him or to preserve him through. And so we get into verse 1. And Jesus Christ is portrayed by David here as praying for sustaining grace. Look at what he says in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Now this is Christ in his incarnate state, in his earthly ministry, as a true man praying to the Father, asking for preservation and perseverance through his hardships. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Preserve me, sustain me is the idea. Keep me. Christ does what every good son does. He trusts his father. He turns to his father in the midst of his difficulties and his hardships. He looks to the one that he knows loves him and provides for him. And he expresses his confidence in his father's love. Preserve me, O God, for in you I trust. He looks to him indeed as a father. He puts his trust in him. He is expressing to the Father, I know that you love me. I know that you can provide for me. I know that you will provide for me. And I know that you know how best to provide me. Preserve me. I trust in you. And so these verses teach us that in Jesus Christ, we can pray this same kind of prayer. We do pray this same kind of prayer. In fact, only in Christ can we pray this prayer. We can look to his Father as our Father because we're united to Christ. And we can call out to him and pray, preserve me in my difficulties and in my hardships because you are my father, because I trust in you and you love me and you know what's best for me. So then in verse 2 through 11, uh, David rehearses for us seven graces that the Christ will pray for to be preserved in. So we get specific about the kinds of hardships and difficulties that Christ faces and the kinds of prayers that he's praying here. Again, these are Christ's prayer. So in verse 2, Christ prays for preservation in God's goodness. Look at verse 2. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. The first thing that we notice here is that Jesus Christ calls upon his Father as Lord. This is an expression of love and trust and dependence. He acknowledges that God is the true source of his goodness. He makes it very explicit. He says, you're my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Jesus recognizes that all that he is as a man, all that he is as Messiah, all the goodness that he enjoys is, is, is his from the Father, from God. God himself is his true goodness. Nothing that Christ has has any real value apart from God. Even the good things that he has have no value and goodness except because they are from God. <laughs> And they are good to Christ because they're from God. The Lord is his goodness. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Now, this should immediately 
raise the question in our mind, how does Jesus say that he has no goodness in himself? And we might scratch our head about that. But you know, all this is doing is pointing us to the, what the Gospels teach. If you'll remember the rich young ruler, that whole scene, that whole incident that occurred, where the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, Good Lord, or good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember how Jesus answered the rich young ruler. He says, Why do you call me good? There is no one who is good but God alone. Now that's, of course, not Jesus denying his divinity, but that's Jesus saying as a true man, as Messiah, I have no goodness apart from God. And he's the one who receives all the glory. And all of my goodness is from him and from him alone. And so Jesus is praying here in verse 2, preserve me in this understanding that you are my father and all the good that I have is from you and because of you. Preserve me in your goodness. In verse 3, Christ prays for preservation, for love for God's people. Look at what he says in verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is, of course, an expression of his love for the people of God, his love for the elect, his love for the church. The idea is that he loves the church because the Father loves them and gave them to him. He loves his Father, and so he loves the ones his Father loves and he loves the gifts that God has given to him. Again, our minds are taken to the gospel. John chapter 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, not to do the things that I love, but to do the will of him who sent me, to do the things that he loves. And all that the Father has given me, I will cast none of them out. That's a reference, of course, to Jesus' love for the church, his love for God's people. So he's praying here, preserve me, I trust you, Lord, preserve me in goodness, preserve me in your goodness, Preserve me in my love for your people. In verse 4, Christ prays for preservation and hatred for sin. <laughs> verse 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Jesus Christ is confessing here that he hates false worship. He hates sin. He hates the immoral life. He hates evildoers who persist unrepentantly in their sin. He knows and he remembers that sin brings sorrow. He knows that God, his Father, hates sin. So he renews his own vow to hate sin, and he prays that God would sustain him in it. We remember, of course, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that he was made like us in every respect and our weakness, yet he was without sin. He's the sinless Son of God. But here Jesus is in his humanity praying that God would preserve him in his sinlessness. That God would preserve him from sin. In verse 5 through 6, Jesus Christ prays for perseverance in his divine calling, task, and destiny. Look at verse 5 and 6. O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. As we take a look at this verse, it's uh, uh, peppered with rich, redemptive, historical concepts and ideas. He says, you're my portion. You're the portion of my inheritance. The Bible teaches us in Ch Psalm chapter 2 that Christ's inheritance is the nation's. Jesus is thinking about his divine calling. God has given him the nations to judge and to redeem as he sees fit. He's thinking about his divine task. You're the, you're the portion of my cup. 
Again, we think of the New Testament. We think of Jesus praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup that Christ drank? It was the mission that God had sent him on to redeem his people through death, by suffering, by pouring out of his blood, by drinking uh, to the dregs the cup of God's wrath in a substitutionary way on behalf of his people. Lord, you're the portion of my inheritance and my cup. It's you who sent me on this mission. I receive it from you. You maintain my lot. Christ's lot is the promised victory in the divine task and mission that he was sent upon. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Glory of heaven. Through my cup, through this divine task, I'm destined to victory and to ultimate glory and to heaven itself, to a new heavens, a new earth, to, to this idea of lines, the idea of drawing out boundaries. It's a picture of the land inheritance that Christ earns, which of course is the very universe itself in the new heavens and the new earth. The lines have fallen to me in the pleasant places. You have given me a good inheritance that refers to his glory from the people of God. And of course, our minds are taken again to the New Testament for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. We think of Philippians. I have highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And so Jesus is praying that the Lord would preserve him in his divine calling, mission, or his task, and his destiny. In verse 7, Christ prays for preservation in his dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Bless God means to give him glory. It means to acknowledge that he's the source of all blessing, glory, light, life, power, satisfaction, and happiness. And this is something that we can only do by the Holy Spirit. So he blesses the Lord by the Holy Spirit. And he confesses to the Lord that the Lord has given him the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And he's given him the Holy Spirit to lead him and to guide him and to direct him, to instruct him in the night seasons. And so Christ is praying to the Lord, thank you for the Spirit. Preserve me in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Preserve me in my dependence upon him. You remember in the Gospels again, John says in John chapter 3 that Christ was given the Spirit without measure. And we just heard an excellent series over the summer by Dr. Ferguson explaining to us how Christ in his humanity and his messiahship and his calling was dependent upon the Holy Spirit throughout. Christ is praying for preservation and dependence on the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 through 9, Christ prays for preservation in drawing near to God in prayer and finding rest in God through prayer. Look at verse 8 and 9. I have set the Lord always before me. The idea here is I've gone to you in prayer. I've continually poured out my heart to you in prayer. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Christ is speaking here about his uh, his, his regular habit of drawing near to God and gaining strength from God through prayer. When he prays, it brings him near to God. He's at God's right hand. And it has an effect on him. It strengthens him. It strengthens his hope. It restores and refreshes him in his hope, in his body, in his soul. The Bible teaches that we are spirit body compositions. We have an invisible part 
our will, our intellect, our emotions. We have a physical part, our body. And what happens to the spirit affects the body, and what happens in the body affects the spirit. Through prayer, Christ is strengthened in body and soul. Because he is at my right hand, he says, I shall not be shaken. Now the idea is is that Christ is shaken. (laughs) But because God is at his right hand, he's able to say, I shall not be moved. We know in the Gospels that Christ was often under distress. He was troubled. He was anxious. We especially remember Gethsemane. He was bleeding great sweat, drops of blood. Just because of his anxiety. Because he was troubled. We remember that he prayed to the Father. Lord, remove this cup from me. If it's possible, remove this cup from me. And yet he strengthened himself through prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He was shaken and yet he was strengthened through prayer. His heart was often sad. His glory diminished. His flesh restless. But God's word through prayer had a restoring effect on him. And we can see that again in Gethsemane. We can think of all of the many times throughout his earthly ministry, that he went often to go to pray alone. And he was strengthened in those moments. So he's praying, Lord, preserve me through prayer and hope. And then in verse 10 through 11, Christ prays for preservation in the free gift of eternal life and the hope of it. Verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that's the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus Christ, by hope, is looking to the victory that he would win over death and that God was his portion. And because God was his portion, he would live forever. Christ knows that when he comes, he will be rejected and put to death. He knows he must become a sacrifice for his people. He knows that he must bear the wrath of God in their place and in their stead since they cannot. But he does so with fortitude and courage and faith because he knows that death cannot hold him. Because because his father preserves him and keeps him. He knows that he will not see corruption, but God will raise him up. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ knows that he will live with God without sin forever in final triumph and victory. And so he prays that the Lord would preserve him even through death into and unto eternal life. Now what's beautiful about this psalm, of course, is that it points us to our glorious Savior and the whole gospel and all that he did for us in saving us from our sins. But it also reminds us that Christ's prayer becomes our prayer through union with him. And we pray to the Lord for the same things that Christ prayed for because we're united to him. We look to God as our father and we pray that he would preserve us. And we pray that God would preserve us in his goodness and that he would preserve us in our love for his people and that he would preserve us in our hatred for sin and he would preserve us from sin. And that he would preserve us in the calling that God has called us to, to suffer and hardship in this life. And that God would preserve us in dependence upon his Holy Spirit in praise and in prayer. And that he would preserve us through prayer and hope. 
and that God would preserve us also in Christ through death so that though we die, yet we shall live. That Jesus is our resurrection and he's our life. And so I hope that this psalm is very encouraging to you this morning as we go now to the Lord in prayer.